All right, y'all. Well, hey, welcome back to the podcast here at Oak Grove United Methodist Church. Joseph, one of your pastors, delighted to have my friend, colleague, co-conspirator in many good and wonderful, uh, good trouble kinds of things, uh, the Reverend Dr. Brian Tillman. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be here, Joseph. Thank you. Brian is the Director of Inclusion and Advocacy for the North Georgia Conference of the United Methodist Church. Uh, for those of y'all who are still learning Methodese and Method <laughs> Methodist things, so the United Methodist Church is broken up into geographic conferences. We are a part of the North Georgia Conference, which is basically like the north half of Georgia. And we are overseen by uh, Bishop Robin Deese, and she is delightful. We had her installation service a year right and a bit ago right mm -hmm. here at Oak Grove, and that was quite an honor to host that. Inside of the work of the conference, there are lots of folks working in extension ministry to help connect the churches all around our conference and to help us do the work of God here. Brian uh, does that, and uh, say a little bit about what that role is for people, and then we'll get into some of your bio and background. Sure, sure. So a large part of my role is Director of Conclusion and Advocacy and Co-Director of Connectional Ministries. And so those two roles combined together, you know, I help support the work of the nominations process for the conference, um, the common table for the conference, uh, working with our advocacy groups, religion and race, uh, status and role of women, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and helping to uh, actionize the vision of the conference. Yeah, so sort of putting into practice mm -hmm. the things we say we believe. Correct. So yeah. creating resources, curating resources, mm. um, and looking at the whole system of our conference to see where things are uh, just or unjust and trying to make improvements. And I'm glad to have you on the podcast here today because today we're talking about spiritual practices during the season of Lent and having you on a guest uh, today, we're talking about justice as a spiritual practice. Right. And so some of the spiritual practices we've done are traditional ones you might have heard of. Some of them are uh, different ones uh, from walking to spiritual practice. David Nagley talking about woodworking mm -hmm. as spiritual mm -hmm. practice. We've done a lot of – some of his work uh, too. It's, it's some beautiful stuff. Yeah. Um, but all of these practices, these habits, these patterns are the things that form us. Our beliefs only form us so much. It's our actions and things that actually impact us. Uh, in seminary, we were talking earlier about some of our favorite professors. And uh, <laughs> one of them I learned in systematic theology with Dr. Noel Erskine was uh, Dorothy Sole's action sort of practice and reflection. Mm -hmm. This loop and cycle of doing something out of your belief set, evaluating how that thing went, reflecting upon it, and then that informs what you believe. And so that sort of cycle uh, is true for any sort of spiritual practice, learning to do those things. Uh, well, before we get into justice as a spiritual practice, which I'm really excited about since we've done some Looking of this work to together, uh, sort of who are you and how'd you get here? Uh, that's, that's the question we ask <laughs> every guest on the podcast. That could be the whole Could uh, be the whole show. Um, yeah. um, so I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. And moved to uh, the Atlanta suburbs when I was in middle school. So I was 12 years old. Moved to Cherokee County, Woodstock, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Uh, went to Etowah High School. Woohoo, War Eagles. Um, and uh, grew up in Michigan, uh, very much Pentecostal. And yeah. when I moved to Georgia, my dad was going to an AME church, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And when I went to college, I was a little bit of everything. Uh, sure. Catholic church, went to non-denominational church, Baptist church, Methodist church. You know, did chapel yeah, yeah. Um, at the colleges and, um, you know, went to Morehouse for undergrad. And Morehouse is a very yeah. justice heavy, uh, liberal arts, uh, all male private college um, that has a long history of folks who've been in, engaged in justice work, including Absolutely. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, et cetera. So there was sort of the, the real 
beginnings for me in engaging in in justice work uh, and learning more about it. Um, I had the honor of meeting lots of different civil rights leaders um, at that um, time and that location that inspired me. Uh, to, yeah. keep, to keep pushing. Uh, I became United Methodist in Indiana. So I was uh, in Indiana doing a master's in education. South Bend, Indiana is where I lived. It was there that I encountered the United Methodist Church. Um, I was looking for a place where me and all of my friends who were from diverse backgrounds hmm. could go to worship together. Wow. Um, and so I was teaching. Uh, at the most diverse school in South Bend, uh, Green Intermediate Center. And uh, me and my friends did everything together all week long, mm. except on Sundays. Wow. And so I started, you know, perusing different denominational websites to see where I wanted to affiliate. And I stumbled across the United Methodist uh, website for the Indiana conferences. And I saw the bishop for the United Methodist Church in Indiana was Bishop Woody White, a black man. Oh, yeah. And I said to myself, wow. I didn't know there was black folks in the United Methodist Church. Yeah. Um, and so I sent him an email. That's wow. what you story before. No, I did. I, I see you and I both known Bishop <laughs> White, and I've known you for a long time, but I've never heard. I'm so excited about this story. Okay. I sent him an email that night and he responded like early in the morning, probably three or four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> he stays up and responds to email and he wrote me back. And invited me to dinner. So about a couple weeks later, we I drove down to Kokomo, wow. Indiana, had dinner with him. And I said, you know, I'm going to give this United Methodist Church a try. And so mm -hmm. he recommended a church in my area. I went to. It was a fantastic church. Um, and it kind of took off from there. I started okay. learning more about the United Methodist Church there. And when I moved back to Atlanta, uh, shortly thereafter, you know, I, I felt very strongly the call to ministry in the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. And went to seminary and the whole nine there. So, um in the earlier days of my appointments, I was in cross-racial appointments, yeah. which is when a, a pastor is appointed to a congregation that is, you know, not a match for their own racial ethnic um, background. Sure. And so I was appointed to churches there and, and, and caught some, um, some trouble. <laughs> sure. Not the good kind. <laughs> Taking some yeah. justice positions and mm -hmm. being, some, you know, sort of vocal about some of the things happening around. Around that time was when Trayvon Martin was killed. Yeah. And Jordan Davis was killed. Wow. And so uh, speaking about those things in those contexts uh, were shunned and frowned upon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, various levels of uh, punishments were rendered to me mm. for refusing to be silent about those things. Um, yeah. One of the... I was associate pastor, so one of the senior pastors, and I won't name people, but uh, one of the senior pastors responded to me um, that I chose to speak about the hottest topic in America. Hmm. And I looked back at him and I said, isn't that what the church ought to do? Yeah. And he said, well, this situation, you know, with Trayvon Martin in that case, uh, does not impact our community wow. in, in Florida. Uh, yeah. But I was like, you know, it's a young black man <laughs> uh, walking through a majority white neighborhood sure. um, and is uh, is killed. And I said, I happen to have uh, young black men in my house. You know, I have a yeah. son, two sons and, and two daughters now. Um, and he didn't see that as impacting our community. A couple of weeks later from that conversation, Jordan Davis is killed in Florida. Yeah. And this is the, you know, the loud music right. guy. They were playing that music too loud. And so he shot up the car. And Jordan Davis, while this happened in Florida, he lived right down the street from the church. Wow. And literally his funeral, the processional drove by the church I was appointed to, to go to a church around the corner My goodness. for the funeral. And I remember putting the newspaper under his uh, office door with a note that this impact yeah. our community. Mm. Um, not real popular thing. I'm sure that didn't go over well. 
<laughs> so in, in the Methodist world, we have uh, associate pastors and lead pastors. And, and, and the good thing here at Oak Grove is uh, we, we say we love each other. We get along. There's great uh, conversations. And ultimately, the senior pastor, you know, has to make some decisions that associate pastors don't always have to. Yeah. That does free us up to say some things. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's good. Now, in our process, elders are guaranteed appointment. And that helps uh, free people to say what needs to be said in the communities. Yeah. So I think that's an important sure. thing yeah. to note uh, that elders uh, in good standing are guaranteed appointments. I'm a deacon in the Methodist church. And so my job is to help connect the church and the world. And I'm ordained to ministries of compassion and justice uh, and other ways of service in the world and helping elders do that work of the church. Um, so that's helpful to helpful to hear a little bit of the, Oh, and I knew some of those, some of those uh, not so great stories, but, yeah. I, but I think in, in part of the conversation we're having about spiritual practices and during that season of Lent, Again, the traditional uh, practices for Lent were for people to be penitent, sort of repenting, going uh, down one road they shouldn't be going, do a 180. That's metanoia, the word for repentance. Uh, doing that repentance or that sort of work and getting back into relationship with your community or back into the church community or back in relationship with God typically took three forms. Praying. Fasting, so abstaining from things so you might recognize your dependence upon God, mm -hmm. and also almsgiving to the poor. Now, almsgiving is not something we necessarily find to be our sort of, oh, I'm going to give, well, there's not an alms box, we're not from the 15th century, uh, it's not medieval times. But giving to charity, not just your financial resources, but your time, and your energy, your personhood. Mm -hmm. And so, when you think about this process of doing that self-searching, uh, that own, your, your own work, and then... Uh, putting that into faith, into action. Mm -hmm. You've got to have that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, after those appointments, uh, you changed appointments oh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> moved on to, uh, we, we've gotten to do some things together at Ben Hill and some other yeah, places you've yeah. been. Yeah. So, it's, it's been an exciting uh, journey in a lot of ways. And I always felt like um, taking these strong positions on, on justice issues um, would eventually result in me being kicked off on the outskirts somewhere uh, mm. and forgotten about. And um, that's not happened <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me. Obviously, I'm in a role now that I never dreamed of being able to, to be in. Uh, and I'm grateful for the leaders of the conference um, and the, the, the folks who have gone to bat uh, for me to help uh, put me in a place where I can do meaningful ministry. Uh, as relates to justice and racial justice in particular. So yeah. uh, grateful for a lot of the folks that go unnamed, <laughs> uh, even some of those who are unnamed who did not want to help. <laughs> sure. But uh, still, their contribution to, to my growth and development um, have, have been helpful for me. So uh, grateful for it all. I reflect on this a lot yeah. um, because I'm, I'm just, you know, you don't really know what the path ahead looks like sure. um, when you're in the midst of something. Okay. And uh, this is why this, you know, for me as a spiritual practice is I feel God's presence most hmm. when I'm engaged in justice work. And I can see God's hand at work hmm. um, in doing that. Uh, so it's, it's, I'm very clear. It is not me. Hmm. <laughs> uh, whatever success has resulted in um, the positions I've taken or the work that I've done, um, I know it's not me. I know and I can see and feel God's hand yeah. doing something. And I'm simply trying to participate with God's will um, and, and engage in that way. And I've seen that so many times now um, that it's, it's just incredible each time.
Brian and I have done a lot of things together. Uh, you've drawn me into many good things to be a part of uh, as a photographer, videographer. But one of the things I was thinking about uh, when we were planning and thinking about some of this conversation today was uh, the Methodist March Against Racism. Mm. So in the summer of 2020, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah. and we're outside uh, all kneeling down together for, uh, for moments of prayer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. together. And you helped organize and orchestrate that march mm -hmm. uh, from Central United Methodist Church. Uh, to Atlanta first. To Atlanta first. You know how that happened? No, tell me, tell me some of that. Uh, well, but I think like that march itself had hundreds of folks in it yeah, from yeah. across our I was our surprised connection. by that response too. But yeah. you know, the, initially they wanted to march to the state capitol, <clears throat> and I said no. Um, that you know that that would be wrong uh, for for me. Uh, justice work is most meaningful in the context in which you have influence, mm. um, and our conference had so much work that needed to be done. When it came to racial justice, it would be so hypocritical for us to go to the state capitol and demand of the governor and the state legislature to do X, Y, and Z as it relates to racial justice when mm. we, our own conference, have done little to nothing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I said, you know, before we march to the capitol, let's let's march to our own selves <laughs> uh, and hold yeah. ourselves accountable to who we say we are. Wow. Um, and then start doing those things. I, I think that was the right call. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and we, we did. I mean, we began to, to do more earnest work uh, and reflection about who we are, who we say we are, and where those things do not line up. Uh, and yeah. So, again, very courageous leadership uh, by Bishop Sue Harper Johnson in, in, in making that happen. Well, and, and, and your team and the folks you have working for our Commission on Religion and Race for North Georgia and also – uh, I mean, again, I, I know lots of our church members who went and marched together during that time. Mm -hmm. And so you think about all the different ways that was impactful for our youth who were there and seeing all these people uh, from across our entire uh, group of United Methodists in North Georgia. Uh, that was a really powerful yeah. moment. And, and for me, a great way of public witness. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a photographer that I've worked with some a couple of weeks before that. Um, and then I invited him to come out and walk with us. And he was like, Yeah. So, so Arvin came out, and now Arvin works for the AJC and is doing all this great coverage wow. uh, of, especially for people in less represented uh, categories inside of the Atlanta Journal, and and doing some really amazing work. Uh, but the photos and the videos from that event, I still go back and look at those Same. and see that line of United Methodists marching past the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, yeah. past the federal uh, station there, mm -hmm. and then all the way through Centennial Park. And we stopped along the way at different moments mm -hmm. and had some very intentional, when you think about pilgrimage, that mm -hmm. journey language, it was. it was some of that journeying together. Uh, while we sang or chanted or did things. But you want to say anything about some of the stops we had there? Yeah, so um, the, the the march from Central UMC to Atlanta first, it's probably in the area of three miles, three and a half miles, somewhere in there. <clears throat> and so we wanted to, to, to stop at some significant locations on the way. Mm -hmm. And one of them was the uh, Richard B. Russell building, uh, who was a you know Georgia senator uh, for the, representing the state of Georgia in Congress. Um, has several buildings named for him, and he was a staunch segregationist and racist. Mm. Um, and so that building uh, there is named in his honor uh, across from the smaller Martin Luther King Federal Building. Right. Uh, so we wanted to stop there. <laughs> yeah. Just acknowledge <laughs> um, that a little bit. And, yeah, and, and to talk about who he was. We have these these uh, monuments or places mm. of honor uh, named for, for people who were of reprehensible character. Um, yeah. And there seemed to be little appetite to, to shift uh, the naming of those things. Um, 
And and before I go too far, I mean, I, again, a lot of this justice talk and work needs to happen internally. Um, sure. And that's what Lynn is about is, as well. And uh, as we talk about names of things out in the public space, hmm. we also have names of things in the United Methodist Church that yeah. should probably be addressed as well, including churches. Sure. Um, some of those church names are, are uh, can be surprising when we do a little bit of research. <laughs> <laughs> yep. To see what's there underneath. Uh, well, that's true. So I, it's sometimes easier to point the finger somewhere else mm. um, and, and not to look right where you are. And that's that was kind of the, the purpose of marching from, you know, the historic black church, one of the oldest in our conference, yeah. uh, to one of the flagship white churches um, in our conference just down the street and why there were two separate congregations mm. that close together to begin with. But <clears throat> um, it's, it's the internal work because, um, you know, that that is critically important and it gives you validity when you go someplace else. Sure. And I think there's always this, uh, the thing I often encourage folks to understand is we're all in process. Mm. Nobody's got it all figured out. We in the Methodist world have our th- sort of three flavors of grace, our uh, provenient yeah. grace that goes before us, the justifying right. grace that helps get us set right. Sanctifying. And then that sanctifying or, or in the South sanctifying, mm. um, the grace that keeps on working on us. And, and that's not a process that stops. Um, this becoming more mature in Christ, it takes a lot of work. Um, I have a four-year-old. You've raised kids. you got kids. We know how this part works, that when we're working with our children, uh, whether it's a niece, nephew, aunt, uncle, kid, other things, there's this process of them learning what it means to be more mature, to learn that I can't just react out of my own way or avoid that thing because there's some stuff we got to do. Uh, adulting is hard, they say, yeah. Um, yeah. especially when you're the parent. Uh, but, but it's part of that process to teach people and learn together from people who've done this before we have. Um, when you and I, uh, we've been a part of a clergy education group for a number of years, and uh, we went uh, on a trip to Germany. Mm-hmm. And we were there to look at, uh, during uh, 2017, 2018, when was this? 2019? 2019. 2019. Uh, like, I don't, so the pandemic made now? me lose yeah. track of time. <laughs> so, so we were there looking at sort of what did the, the church uh, in Germany do to resist Hitler? and to resist resist Nazism. Uh, We also were looking at the Berlin Wall Mm -hmm. and that time and phase of life, and then also looking at how Germany had taken in, uh, just that year before, over a million immigrants who were in need, refugees uh, refugees coming in, and that was a part of Germany's charter and their sort of refounding after the Second World War. in that trip, we were looking at monuments. You mentioned that, and that was the we, we shot these little vignette videos. I'll, I can link some of those down below, yeah. talking about our experience there in country, uh, and filming all of it there, and recording the audio there, and then me editing it when we got back. And uh, I talked about monuments and how we have there. One of the first things we saw was a monument to the horrors and atrocities, and it named off the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. This is in the public square outside mm-hmm. of our hotel Airbnb around the corner. And they were all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there are these monuments to those who were killed, obviously, but also against the atrocities and say, let this never happen again. Yeah. And I, I remember that because we, we walked past that monument <laughs> earlier in the day before the yeah. tour guide met us. Yeah, yeah. And we had paid no attention to it. Yeah, because we didn't. I we don't, didn't I, we don't speak German. German. <laughs> 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 Mostly because we don't read or speak German. Yeah. And, you know, we were just dumbfounded. With what that was, you know, it was. And I, I remember the the inscription said something like, "He translated, this is our national shame," and then yeah. a listing of those concentration camps uh, for all to see. There were other things I remember about that trip mm-hmm. as well, <clears throat> and it was this this university that Hitler and the Nazis had started, 
Mm-hmm. And um, they took all the rubble collected, not all, but a lot of the rubble collected from around Europe mm-hmm. and dumped it over top of this university that was built um, to bury it. Um, yeah. it. It was just astounding how they took these different, a different route sure. um, to telling their story and their history, not in a way to glorify what they've done, but to use it as a lesson for the world. You know, about sure. Here's what can happen uh, if you allow uh, in, <laughs> people who are bent towards injustice uh, mm. to lead. Sure. And so it was an incredible um, and powerful experience uh, to be there with you and the others. Yeah. And we went to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's house. He was mm-hmm. a part of the resistance mm-hmm. uh, against Hitler and, and lost his life in a concentration camp for his beliefs and living weeks out before, that call yeah. weeks before it was liberated. Yeah. Uh, and so he was a remarkable pastor that many people still read now mm-hmm. in devotional contexts, uh, amazing writing, amazing work. But on that trip, we saw, uh, again, as, as, as people from America coming to a different place, you often, we talk about this on mission trips, you go somewhere else and you come back changed and you see your context differently. Mm-hmm. And for many of us who went on the trip, we certainly had that experience. And, and even going to learn about how others have put justice into practice, it changes how you then see how you might do that to put justice into practice. Inside of our United Methodist baptismal vows, oh, yeah? um, I wanted to chat a bit about that because every time we have someone join the church or have a child baptized, um, I remind the congregation and I tell the people joining or the adult being baptized, you're reminding this church what they got in for. Mm-hmm. So rejecting evil and oppression yes. in whatever forms they present themselves, mm-hmm. uh, that God gives you the power to do that and that you not should, mm-hmm. maybe, but you have to say, yes, I will. Yes. That's a part of the, the covenant. The it's right there. Of, yeah. of, of sin and injustice. And so it is a major focal point hmm. of Christianity. Um, and anyone that tries to convince you otherwise um, is committing theological malpractice. Uh, I remember there was a, a superior, and I won't say any more about the superior, um, but we had a debate about justice being an integral part of the gospel. And he declared it, it was not. <laughs> and then <clears throat> uh, required me to uh, reread the New Testament along with him and then have these weekly conversations about where I saw justice in the gospels. I had a field day with that task, by the way. Yeah, because um, it's everywhere. <laughs> but he simply yeah. huh. could not see that as an integral part of wow. the gospel. And I remember reading Jim Wallace, God's Politics. Yeah. Um, and there's a section where he's talking about a, a friend of his in seminary who decided he was going to take a pair of scissors and cut out all the passages in the Bible that had to do with justice. And when he got done, the Bible was in shreds. Just, uh, there, was just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was just nothing left because it's wow. such a major focus um, on Christianity. And so... Um, it, it is a part of who we are um, and who we, we ought to claim that part of who we are sure. uh, is engaged in, in, in justice work. You know, simply um, justice, if you think about um, typing a, a paper, right, sure. on a word processor, hmm. uh, not a typewriter. I was going to say typewriter initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in Microsoft sure. Word or some other yeah, yeah. Uh, word processor, you know, there's these these uh, tabs at the top where hmm. uh, you can right justify or left justify hmm. the page. And that's lining things up. And yeah. so a, a good way for me to understand and help people understand what it is to engage in justice, it is literally the work of making things right. Hmm. Uh, you're justifying uh, okay. Thing. So the, the 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 task of the work of making things right. 
Um, that's the simple definition I, I share with my kids. <laughs> that works though. Um, yeah. You know, so anytime you're you're working on making things right, you're doing justice work. Mm. Um, and and I, I think that's uh, helpful for me at least to that's remember great. and and to simplify. It, is, it doesn't have sure. to be this major big. Uh, push, uh, it can be small little things that have yeah. an impact. And it may not change the whole world, but it can change the world for one person. Sure. Uh, and that and that matters. And so um, even if that person is is me. Well, I think part of uh, in your work with the conference and you're being sort of uh, known by so many clergy and other folks in the conference, uh, again, it's not because you sought to be known, uh, but because you're doing the work and you're helping other people see that and understand how to do that. Um, I love that imagery that I can explain to my four-year-old about making things right and helping things be in line with what God tells us in the scriptures about justice. Uh, and it takes that internal work. Mm-hmm. Um, if the things we believe don't live outside of the church building, then do we really believe mm-hmm. them? If we're not transformed by the encounter with God each and every Sunday that we have in a worship service and we don't walk out as changed people, then have we really encountered the living God? Right. And that's one of those in that Pentecostal rootingness uh, of the Methodist understanding of of experiencing God's Spirit and God's presence. We can we ha- we are changed by encountering one another and encountering God's presence among us and and changing the world, right? I mean, it, our our mission as United Methodists is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, and uh, it does not say make disciples of Jesus Christ so that they can go to heaven. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, th- yeah. there, there's work for us here mm. to do. And I think, you know, too many times we sit in our churches and think that that's, that's it, you know, get people sure. saved um, and then they go to heaven. Job is done. Well, yeah. what, what about this transforming the world part? What right. about being a witness uh, to God's power and might and God's concern uh, mm. for people's plight in life? Um, that is in, in, in important to who we are uh, and what we say. Uh, I often like to shift the beginning of that a bit to be yeah. go therefore and be disciples yeah. of Jesus Christ, which quite frankly, in the translation of it, uh, <laughs> is probably a better rendering sure. um, of that. And, and I like that being a disciple piece mm-hmm. because it's, it's a calling for me to do something, sure. not somebody else to be made to do something. Mm. Right. And so I can be a disciple to anyone. They don't have to confess anything. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to pay for anything. Sure. That you know, I can be a disciple to to anyone. It's something that I am doing, mm-hmm. um, and so um, that's how I see that text, and, and and that's why I think it fits so well with justice work and how we engage. It's about what we're doing uh, and why we're doing it, and who's called us to do it. Yeah. And and then you realize, man. When you start seeing the results and the progress, it wasn't us doing it at all. God was looking for some participants, yeah. Um, so He can show us all who will go for me, right? Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I think that's a, a powerful way to think about how both the individual and corporate, the communal part of it, comes together. Because in any of this work we do as a church here at Oak Grove or in the North Dakota Conference, uh, again, seeing everyone show up for a march or a thing annual conference, when we show up together, you see the power of God at work to get all these different people to do the same sort of things and actions in ways that help the world be a better place, not just for themselves, but for others. That's that transformational part of how God is at work in the world. Uh, I'm so glad that at Oak Grove, we understand that uh, the things we do in this church are not just for us, uh, that we, our community, um, are a part of what God is doing. 
why in the world would the church exist only for itself? That is uh, completely not what Jesus talked about. Uh, and uh, it's also one of those things that, I, again, I'm glad to be a part of a church community that understands that and a Methodist connection who gets that. Yeah. It's helpful. A radical dude. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why they killed him. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if, if he was going around just sharing pleasantries and being yeah. nice and sweet um, and not saying anything about the injustices in the world, uh, they would have had no reason to kill him. Okay? Yeah. He wasn't harming their bottom lines. He was not harming uh, the the power structures they set up for themselves to oppress people. Um, but Jesus came in doing what he said he was called to do, mm. to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recover your sight to the blind, let the oppressed go away free, uh, and declare that you're the Lord's favor. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's justice work. One of the things that, that we hear as a response um, to justice and engaging in, in justice ministry and work is that the church um, needs to stay out of politics, mm. right? Sure. And I'm like, no, I think you've got that wrong. The church needs to stay out of partisanship. Yeah. Um, but politics, we how do you bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recover your sight to the blind? And let the oppressed go away free without engaging in politics. Sure. Uh, those, all those things are political. Uh, and our book of discipline uh, tells us to do this. So I've, I've got two yeah, yeah. passages here uh, that, that I've lifted. One is in our Constitution, paragraph five, where mm -hmm. it says, <laughs> uh, work collaboratively with others to address the concerns that threaten the cause of racial justice in all times and in all places. Mm -hmm. And then paragraph 164B on politics, yeah. uh, to continually exert a strong ethical influence upon the state, supporting policies and programs deemed to be just, hmm. and opposing policies and programs that are unjust. Uh, yeah. We are to be engaged in the political process and advocating for uh, just laws and policies and practices in the United Methodist Church and out of the United Methodist Church. Yeah, and that's a helpful distinction for people to understand the idea of something being political of and relating to the community. Mm -hmm. Well, most everything the church does, <coughs> everything, <laughs> should, should do that, right? Correct. Now, partisanship, certainly, I think whenever we think about um, you know, that level of unfairness and unkindness towards other people, that ad hominem uh, against others type thing, that doesn't fit. Uh, so, partisan politics… Yeah. Uh, yeah, or partisanship. <laughs> yeah, let's, don't mess with that. Uh, well, I think that's helpful to think about how when people talk about the church being too political, because mm. that gets mentioned by a lot of folks inside of Christian circles in America. And again, I agree uh, with part of what we've said here as United Methodist in our book of discipline, which are the laws that govern the church, says that we are to be engaged in this kind of work that impacts our community so deeply. Mm. I know for... Uh, a lot of us in North Georgia, uh, the legislature is going on during this season, mm -hmm. and there are clergy and folks involved in different things and advocating for positions and advocating for especially supporting groups that are historically disenfranchised and not included. Uh, and that's a big part of the work we do together as pastors and people. What are some of the ways that folks can get involved in advocacy and inclusion as part of their justice work here for the North Georgia Conference? Yeah, so uh, I, I, I try to keep the scope 
small, so sure. folks aren't overwhelmed and feel yeah, like yeah. they got to go and and be some major champion and be on TV and sure. <laughs> um, lead major protests and so on and so forth. And 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 you don't, you know. Sometimes it's as simple as sniffing around and seeing what's what's around and see what doesn't make sense and doesn't add up. Sure. Um, and then ask questions hmm. um, and invite people to explain why these outcomes are the way that they are. I remember I was uh, serving a, a, a church uh, as an associate pastor and I on my way to um, churches in one of the richest cities in, in Georgia. Um, and so everything is kind of pristine and perfectly placed yeah. and, and proper. And on my way to church from my home, I would pass off to the side of the road, uh, this, you know, cemetery that seemed really out of place. There was no gate, there was no barrier. Um, and it, it just, something didn't make sense. There was no sign, nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, one day I pulled off to the side of the road, there was no you know, place to park, it was literally on the side of the road. And I got out, started looking around. Um, and I, I noticed the, a lot of the last names, um, matched the last name of the namesake for the city. Wow. Um, and I quickly learned that this was the burial ground for the people that he enslaved. Wow. Um, and his family cemetery was around the corner, of course, wonderfully gated, yeah. Big sign. <laughs> maintained and yeah. et cetera. And um, just, you know, trying to figure out like, man, this is, doesn't seem like a match. And then I noticed that some of the burials were very recent. Hmm. That the family was still burying in this cemetery. Wow. And so I tried to find out who they were and make contact with them uh, with, with no success. And so I, I put a team together from the church um, to see if we could, you know, one, find some of the members of the family, at least help them to, you know, get a fence and a sign or something sure. to that effect. And it turns into something very different. <laughs> uh, that first meeting that we held, uh, some of the family did uh, get the notice okay. um, uh, of the meeting and, and showed up and initially a thought that we were trying to take their cemetery. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I convinced them, no, we're not trying to take your cemetery. And in fact, I want to make you aware that when you say your cemetery is actually still owned by the enslaver's family. Wow. And they were planning a big development around that cemetery. And so yeah. we started working together. And we had to go to, you know, city zoning meetings oh, yeah. and city yeah. council meetings to, you know, fight the zoning and so on and so forth. Try to negotiate with the enslavers family to deed the property over, which the chairman was absolutely opposed to. Wow. Um, and you'd be surprised who this chairman was. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was uh, astounding. And um, from, from there, you know, became the long journey hmm. of trying to help them uh, gain ownership of the the land where their ancestors were buried. Wow. And I remember this um one day we're we're I'm gonna identify it's not his name, but he's the quadruple great grandson of the enslaver. Uh wonderful man. He's also United Methodist, uh, different church. Um but he was someone that was willing to talk with us. And we had these series of meetings with him and lunches. He I and one member of the black side of the family. They both have the same last name, sure. obviously. Um, and um, after about, um, you know, about a year and a half into the process, he invited us to the old farmhouse that was built in 1839. Wow. Um, and the member of the, the family that I was taking with me knew when we got 
there. This is going to be a yeah. <laughs> momentous occasion for sure. her, one that was not so pleasant. And mm. so she's following me in her car. Uh, I'm driving. She's following behind me. And then she calls me on the way there. She says, you know, I, I can't I can't go there. And I said, if you don't go to this place, you're going to miss the opportunity to finally allow your ancestors to leave the plantation. Wow. She went. And about a year and a half or two later, we walked out with a deed <laughs> to that uh, That's amazing, bro. two acre yeah. plot. And it was just <clears throat> sniffing around. Something didn't really look right and didn't make sense. And I started to ask questions. And I didn't have the skill set, didn't know the first thing about cemeteries. <laughs> Property law. Um, right. yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, quickly learned that, you know, there's a, a 501c13 status for cemeteries, okay. uh, which I did not uh, know. But uh, the right people started showing up yeah. uh, to help. One of them was this critical member of the family who helped us. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was a champion of that. And hmm. that all started because I was just poking my nose around places and yeah. asking questions. You were paying attention to the different things around you and noticing things that people just drove past literally thousands of people every day. Mm. And paid no mind to. So I think that's that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And I think there's places all around us all the time that sure. we, we are missing um, and, and don't see. And sometimes there's not a lot that you can do in short time span. And sometimes there is. Uh, sometimes people just are unaware of, mm. of what's around them. And when you make them aware, um, they want to do something. And so you give them an opportunity to make a better decision or to create a better outcome. Um, and, and that's when justice work is <laughs> so encouraging and rewarding, um, mm. almost miraculous yeah. uh, when you see it. Tell everybody a little bit about sort of some of the retreat and sort of educational things you do that are experiential for the conference. I'd love, I, I think those are easily accessible for people to sort of know what that is and how to get involved in yeah, that. So as well. one is the racial justice and healing Academy that we have yeah. in the conference. Uh, we're I think in our third or fourth cohort right now that ends later this month. Um, and we've, we've taken it on the road, if you will. So instead of centralizing it all in Metro Atlanta, we started taking it into the districts. And so, uh, this round that's finishing this month is up in Dalton, which is in the Northwest District. Um, and then next fall, uh, it'll be launched in the Southeast District in the Augusta area. And so these are a series of uh, four to six experiences, uh, trainings, workshops, encounters. Um, that includes um, uh, generally a tour uh, of that general area. So when we're up in Dalton, we focused it you know, around yeah, the Dalton area, area in the Northwest District um, and taking people to places that they've driven by a thousand and one times and may not know the significance uh, of those sure. locations. Um, and so helping them to understand some of the history of racial terror uh, right in their own backyards. Yeah. Uh, at one point, we called it the racial terror tour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't get a lot of signups for that. Uh, I'm good. Thanks. But yeah. 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 <laughs> So but, now it's the racial history tour. Uh, sure. But uh, to, to help people understand some of that narrative, uh, yeah. and, and it's, it's incredible the things that we have been through mm -hmm. um, and um, some of the things that are not through, yeah. they're still ongoing, ongoing, things that we can correct and improve and heal. And that's what we want people to see mm -hmm. and then share with them uh, a framework, if you will, 
to help them engage uh, in racial justice work in their own context. And, and that's the focal point. Sure. Uh, it is not simply to go these places, have a good experience, and then leave. Yeah. It is, what are you going to do in your own context? Uh, sometimes we're literally showing them uh, what people, other people did in their context, sure. in their time. Um, and you know what can you learn or glean from them that can help you as you engage your own contact in space, you know, starting with your own family and your own church sure. um, and your own community. Well, I think that's a really excellent opportunity. I'll put the link down for that down below in the show notes here. And so if you're interested in that, uh, the next cohort of things, or just learning more about it, you can find more information there on the conference website. There's also uh, the reparations task force yes. that uh, you were a part of. And, and our very own well. pastor, <laughs> pastor Beth was a part of that. Y'all invited me to help yeah. make some, sort of short documentary films with you and some other wonderful folks. And there's three of those that I'd highly recommend for you all to check out. Yeah. Uh, we've shown some of those for our church folks here, but I'd love for you to find them. I'll put those down in the show notes as well, but sure. remarkable stories. And uh, as a, a film and photography nerd, a lot of fun to help get to tell those stories and edit those in. Uh, so really, really powerful and helpful stories about our North Georgia conference. Uh, Paul Easley, the Reverend Paul yeah. Easley, coming uh, in the 60s to St. Mark and being sort of shown the door. And then when Pastor Beth was there, inviting him to come back and preach homecoming. Mm -hmm. And then sharing some of their conversations and the stories that they were able to share about that experience. Uh, just he, a remarkable man uh, and a remarkable uh, sort of legend in the North Georgia Conference. Yeah, it's a remarkable yeah. story. And I, I, there are others as well. But you know, those, those stories were picked uh, for a particular type of of, of uh, purpose, uh, one was to to deal with the mental image people have when they hear the word reparations. Sure. Um, the image that that people generally have is a blank check being handed to somebody. Sure. <laughs> Which is not what <laughs> uh, to about. do whatever. And so we wanted to tell some stories um, uh, of of reparation um, right. and, that did not necessarily have anything to do with money um, mm. to help people to be ready for some of the things Reparations Task Force was going to ask them to do. Um, and uh, it, it worked. Um, you know, with the, having something in North Georgia that's called the Reparations Task Force yeah. uh, was... <laughs> Was was no small step. <laughs> it was no small thing well, at all. And this past year annual conference, uh, mm -hmm. the North Georgia Conference approved some of uh, all of the recommendations of the task force at, at, yeah. at a super high sure. rate. Joseph, yeah. you've been to conference how many times? Yeah, a couple of times. So, so yeah, yeah. Um, so North Georgia Conference is our sort of legislative body that gathers about uh, two thousand Methodists in in Athens, Georgia, every summer, lay people and clergy, equal representatives, to be there together to make decisions for our body, the church, to celebrate the year. Uh, and this past summer, t tell them some about the sort of the things the reparations task force put yeah. forward and that we've we've approved as a conference yeah so the, there were two major provisions one, one was uh what we call a, a setup of legacy mergers yeah and so the intent for the legacy mergers um is uh for historic black churches uh that were founded shortly after the end of the civil war uh by people who were formerly enslaved uh who oftentimes had to buy property from yeah. the family who enslaved them yeah. uh, and then build a church with their own hands, their own resources. Sure. Um, and we felt it was unjust when those churches dwindled down to just a few for the conference to then sell their property and then the proceeds from their property go into the conference coffers. Sure. Um, and so we wanted to create a, a, a process that would recycle um, those funds back into the black church. And, and what we came up with was legacy mergers mm -hmm. that when a black historic black church 
reach the point of potential closure to allow them to identify another black church to carry on their legacy. We, we got the idea from yeah. uh, visiting synagogues. Wow. Where um, there, lots of synagogues, synagogues have these memorial lights in the back uh, where they remember uh, the, the death of someone in the congregation or a family represented in the congregation. Um, and annually those lights are lit up that week uh, yeah. of their death. And when a synagogue closes, they have to find another synagogue that will take their memorial lights wow. and carry on the legacy of that tradition. And so we kind of set it up in that in that way. And so yeah, the, the legacy mergers was one piece. The other piece uh, was uh, a standing rule that will require all folks who serve in conference leadership, lay and clergy, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, submit to intercultural competency training yeah. um, or anti-racism training. So in North Georgia, when something goes to vote, uh, when it passes, it's generally 54-46. Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah. And these two provisions passed at 91% and 87%. Which is, um, yeah. It was astounding. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know if you caught this, but I, I had a, a notebook sitting at the microphone. You were ready. With a cheat sheet of all the potential questions we thought people might ask yeah. about these provisions and the reparations yeah. task force, ready to respond. There wasn't a single question asked. Mm. And when it came time to vote, I'm like, man, this is either really, really good or really, really bad. <laughs> sure, sure. And when it passed, yeah. I was dumbfounded. I was just yeah. like, where are we? We're in North Georgia, and something called the Reparations Task Force just had two provisions pass yeah. at 91 and 87. Like, I, That's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No small well, thing. It's, it is no small thing. And uh, again, you're sensing what God is doing in that way and helping lead our conference in that way. We're just so grateful for that. And again, as a United Methodist Church, we are a part of that at Oak Grove and uh, delighted to be a part of that as, as somebody who, you know, makes makes films and videos and things. Well, you, you helped us capture exactly what we wanted. And I, th- I think the kids being part of the interviews as well. Yeah. I remember, I'm not sure if I told you this, there was a, a pastor who came to me at conference and, and said, uh, Ryan, I have two lay people here <laughs> uh, who... Uh, coming in, told me, like, that reparation stuff, we're not voting and supporting any of that. <laughs> and after they watched mm. your videos, mm. they came back to her and said, we want to support that. That is incredible, and we want to be a part of that. And they help do something good. Again, it's, it's, yeah. it's giving people an opportunity yeah. to, to make something better, uh, to improve it. And it was incredible. Yeah. Certainly can see God's hand at work, even while we were planning and doing it. Yeah. Well, remarkable thing. And uh, as you said, more work to be done, more things to continue. And uh, I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast here today. Glad to be here. uh, To talk about this justice work as a spiritual practice that we are all called to by our baptism, by our being a part of Christian community and following after the way of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, that we talk about so often uh, at church and worship. Uh, and then also remember that that is, that is our lineage, that is our legacy, that we're called to that same kind of work. Uh, well, friends, there's many ways you can get involved in the life of the church here at Oak Grove. If you've got any questions, reach out for us. Uh, thanks for watching and enjoying the podcast here. Uh, again, thank you to my friend, guest, colleague, uh, fellow, co-conspirator, and all the good things God is up to in this world. It's my honor, Joseph, always. Yeah. Glad to be with you today, Brian. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for watching today, and we'll see you in the next video. Peace, y'all. Bye.